She was a funny woman who could really read. She ate her books for breakfast and her name was Mead. She had a brain just like a sponge. When information went in, it was hard to expunge. She does a podcast now, her skills to reassert. She's the speedy, reedy podcast girl of Instant Expert. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Instant Expert. I'm your host, Chris Mead, and across from me is my co-host, Laura Mead. Hello. How are you? I'm a bit topsy-turvy at the moment. Oh, no. Um, yeah, it's just been a pretty crazy few weeks for me and my kin, of whom you are part. Thank you. And a fairly trying time for the whole world, I think. So whilst I would normally be quite like, yeah, I'm good, at the moment I feel like I'm a little under par. Yes. Well, regular listeners will have noticed if indeed a new podcast such as ourselves can be said to have regular listeners, that we have been off the air for five weeks now. And normally, I mean, a lot of new podcasts fail very early on, but we uh, haven't been doing episodes for a legitimate reason. I think a legitimate reason. Yes. So, Laura, would you like to tell the story? Well... About halfway through May, I got a call from my mother saying that she'd taken my dad into hospital. He'd been out in the garden after taking a 30-kilometre bike ride, had stood up from kneeling to lay a patio and suddenly felt a crazy amount of pain in his lower right leg. And I thought, oh, he's snapped something. Oh, he's strained it. He's been doing too much exercise. He's hurt himself. Nope was not that. It was a blood clot that had burst behind his right knee and had wafted its way down its uh, down his right leg. Wafted sounds well, too nice. I think more like a shotgun. Splurged. Flung its way. Yes. Dis- and, and as it went down, it sort of blocked off and destroyed most of the arteries in his lower right leg. And a team of surgeons worked from three in the afternoon till midnight trying to save his leg but the damage was too great and the day afterwards after he hadn't been able to feel his foot for a while they let him know that they were going to have to amputate it. Now this was a bit of a shock for all of us because as I mentioned dad had been out on a 30 kilometer bike ride just before this happened. He's quite a sort of a fit man. He enjoys rambling, he enjoys cycling and this you enjoy rambling. I enjoy rambling. I'm arguably I'm doing it right now. That's right. Um, but this sort of plunged the whole family into a bit of a tiz was because we, we couldn't really go and see him. There are big restrictions on who can actually enter hospitals at the moment with the COVID epidemic going on. Quite right. And here we were faced with the prospect of Dad losing a leg, which he duly did. Then, even when you say it, it doesn't seem real, it seems like something that would happen in a film to go from going on a cycle ride one day to not having a, oh, a that, leg like the that next. morning. Um, when it isn't an, a sort of an accident, I could see how you know if you got hit by a car or something, yeah, but just the fact that that leg was working and I know. then it suddenly wasn't. I know, really odd, yeah. And so, but he's been incredible. The reason that we can be quite upbeat about it is mm. he's had this he's shown this real steel hasn't he and mm. he's been very i mean i'm sure he's had moments where he is very much doubted himself but um he seems to be taking it as a challenge as as like well i don't have a leg anymore but that's not going to stop me doing anything 
Yeah, he's very keen that he gets back walking again as quickly as possible, as are all the various physios who are now working with him at the Queen Mary's Roehampton unit where he is. Um, It's one of the top units in Europe for rehabilitation of people with amputations and with other kinds of walking difficulties. Yeah, and apparently it's very swish. Very swish. Very plush and new and cool and stuff. Um, And it looks like things are healing up nicely. They did discover another clot behind his other knee, which they might need to do another... Well, they will have to do another operation on in a few weeks. Someone give this man a break. Exactly. That's what I think. But better that they do the other operation than take the other one off as well. Absolutely. Um. So, yeah. So, yeah, awful time for our family. Uh, and consequently, no podcasts for quite a long time. But we are back and we are going to dedicate this episode to Adrian Simpson. And, and as such, we're going to do something slightly different. We have already pre-chosen the topic for this week, but Laura has studiously been not studious about looking it up. So Which she's has still... been quite tricky. Yeah, I, so. I like to know about everything. And so obviously, as dad was getting updates from various physios and doctors, I wanted to be sort of like, oh, well... This means that. Yes. So I'm sure you've guessed, but we thought that it would be entirely appropriate this week for Laura to become an instant expert on something around amputation. And what we've chosen is famous amputees. That's right. So you are going to become an expert on on people who have lost a limb and gone on to incredible success. And we thought while you're doing that, you might get some great information about, and I cannot say this word, prostheti. <laughs> <laughs> Try again. No. You can do it. Prostheti. No. Oh, my gosh. Prostheses. Prostheses. That's that right? right. Yeah. Yes. Because they were incredible. What we have seen about what modern ones are like. <laughs> is modern brilliant. prostheses. Yeah. So I would love if you also... Put, if you can do some research on that as well, okay. Um, I know that's a lot, but I they just seem like um, you know, we always have this idea of the six million dollar man, like what it's like when a human being is being is augmented by technology. But it seems to me like we're pretty near that point now. Oh yeah. Do you remember in the uh, London Olympic Games when? Oscar Pistorius, the disgraced. Um, yeah, he is not a role model. We should not be talking chap. about him. Uh, but where he ran in the 100 meter heats using his two prostheses. That's and right. That's just incredible to me. So amazing. That's it. Um, so I, I'm, I hope you didn't mind us having a slightly longer introduction. We wanted to set the scene for why this is a special episode. Uh, but. Business as usual from this point onwards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In so much as anything is usual currently. Way up she rises. Way up she rises. Way up she rises. Her lie in the morning. What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? Heard I in the morning. Wait up, she rises. Wait up, she rises. Wait up, she rises. Heard I in the morning.
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Best Foot Forwards, the podcast that's all about <laughs> prostheses. I can say it now. It's easy. Yeah, simple. How was it? Did you enjoy your time hitting the books? Oh, yeah. I mean, what actually happened was I got really, really into a lot of the emerging technology around prostheses and slightly less into the people with prostheses. So, Sure. I mean, those people are just, I guess they're just on the end of the <laughs> of the of amazing the technology. new yeah. technology. Yeah. So I'm going to be kind to you this week and I'm going to ask you where you would like to begin. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean... I originally did think, okay, yeah, I'll definitely talk, uh, research people with prostheses who are famous. And there are so many avenues that I could have gone down. Um, Ella Fitzgerald, did you know that she was a double limb amputee? Only because you left a tab open on the browser. Oh, whoops. But I didn't know. I had no idea before that point. What limb had she missed out on <laughs> both both her lower legs but uh, that was due to complications from diabetes later in life um but johnny peacock obviously famous british sprinter um rick allen from death leopard crashed his stingray whilst driving um too fast around a corner he's the drummer north yes so he's a one-armed drummer from death leopard tilly Lockie, she is 17 she has these 3d printed bionic arms with which she does makeup tutorials on youtube awesome so so many cool stuff um it, in fact a lot of the very very much leading um bionic limb companies are based in the uk and it was open bionics who designed tilly Lockie's arms and they cost about 5k each because do they move oh yeah what like they have fingers that move yeah and, stuff. and she, she uses her articulate brain. each finger impulse yeah separately how are we already at a point where we can do stuff like that? That's incredible. Well, let me tell you. Okay. It's because of a system called myoelectrics. So that's what creates bionic arms. So people can now design and print their own 3D printed arms. And these are connected to muscle movements in the residual limbs. So the twitches in your residual muscles can used to be activate um, motors in the limb. Themselves. So, so presumably your brain still thinks you have that limb. Yeah, that go all the way down to the fingers and still has pathways, even though they terminate wherever the amputation point is, those those nerves and, and signal carriers still go down. So that's what they use. Yes. Okay. And but it's it's you have to be very, very precise in where you place the electrodes within the socket of the new limb. Mm -hmm. that correspond with where those muscle twitches would be in the residual limb. So only the person that the limb's made for could ever hope to use that limb. Yes. But because those limbs can now be 3D printed, it means that they're much, much cheaper and they can be recycled quite quickly, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had a friend who had a limb stolen from their car. Right. And they were like, I'm the only one that could ever use that because it's specifically for me. Yeah. So someone's just nicked it and they won't be able to use it or sell it. And yeah. I just don't have it anymore. Ugh. People. People, eh? Sure. But it's all part of this drive now that do you, especially for younger um, amputees or younger people who were born without limbs, 
they're not necessarily that interested in having a limb that looks like a limb. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because obviously the design of our limbs are pretty good. They've been perfected over many, many, many generations of evolutionary steps. Yep. But maybe we want something completely different. So some like of them, a pizza oven. <laughs> a pizza oven on the end of your foot. Yeah. I mean, it would be very, very small pizzas, and I don't think foot pizza would really catch off in the same way. It's a bad example. Or catch on. <laughs> so, I mean, people put LEDs in their arms now so they can light them up and look like an actual twinkly robot. Or yeah. they leave the inner workings of the arm, um, they leave the outer skin of it translucent so yeah. that people can see inside. And that makes it a starting point for conversations rather than a sort of, oh, what? I'm surprised. And apparently that makes people a lot more receptive to having the conversations about what it's like to have an artificial limb. That's interesting, isn't it? You would think the more, yeah, I I mean, it does make sense that the more open you are, the more people will feel invited in and and feel like Mm. they can ask questions. Mm, Yeah. The more you make it look or or disguise it, the more, because I think We've got a very good eye. I think all human beings have an amazing eye for when things aren't quite right. If something doesn't quite move right or doesn't look quite right. Like CGI in films. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, when they started doing CGI, everyone was like, I just know it isn't real, even though it looks pretty great. I just, I have a sense. Not the uncanny valley. Yeah, exactly. But it's where you... Basically, you go for functionality over appearance, and that allows you to do much more. So, for example, I watched um, a film about a drummer who can now use two sticks on his one hand. So he's one of the first people who've been able to play polyrhythmically with one hand. So he can, yeah, play one beat with one stick and another beat with another stick. And he's still, I guess he's moving his arm. That's how. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty ace. And it goes even further. So uh, the first kick of the World Cup was taken by a bloke called Miguel Nicolalis using an exoskeleton. So he's somebody who was completely paralysed, but he has these tiny little nanowires implanted in his brain, which measure his neuro reflexes and allowed him to walk and do that first kick. An exoskeleton, presumably being machinery completely yeah. external to his body that that moved his body yeah like in the science fiction film yeah like in the day after tomorrow oh my gosh where you have this yeah effectively a robot encasing you but that responds to your brain impulses so essentially within a few years all soldiers are going to have that aren't they <laughs> I don't well, not know. all soldiers it's probably billions of dollars every time i you think build i one. think it, it can be quite expensive So one of the forerunners in this sort of technology is a bloke called Hugh Hare. And he... What's his name? Hugh Hare. Hugh Hare? I mean, H-E-R-R, like Hare, sir, in German. Yeah, Hugh Hare. Hugh Hare. It's a good name. I think we need to stop and smell the roses sometimes, and that is a good name. (laughs) Well, he's got all sorts of things going on inside his head linguistic roses of course yeah but very good so he was quite an active climber Mm -hmm. when he was younger and he and a mate went out um to climb around an ice canyon and then a blizzard blew up they got lost and uh eventually 
stumbled across a road where they were found by a driver. At this point, both of his lower limbs were very, very badly frostbitten. Mm. So he became a double amputee. That's the worst way. way. I mean, there's no good way to there's become no. an amputee, but to have it slowly die whilst it's attached to you... Is pretty horrible. Feels, yeah, like not a great way. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. Um, but he was actually... Um, uh, his limbs were amputated just above his knee, which is, you know, entirely different in terms of movement. And that's something that we've learnt ourselves through going through this process with your dad is just the vast difference between being a below leg amputee and above leg amputee, uh, above knee amputee, mm-hmm. right? Because the the technology needed to replicate the functionality of a knee. Uh, drives the price up and and the complexity of the limb up. Absolutely. And I'd never even thought about that before. No, no, well, why would you need to? No. So anyhow, within 12 months, he had designed limbs and been fitted with limbs that meant that he was able to climb the same sort of walls that he was before the accident. What did they look like? Um, well, after then... He fitted, he fitted himself with limbs that had special crampons and ice picks just in there as an attachment. Mm, but were pizza also, oven. <laughs> pizza, stop it. There's no, like... I would imagine you'd slide the pizza in the side like a vertical loading DVD. How big are you thinking these like pizzas will mini be? mini pizzas. Mini pizzas, yeah. like sort of the size of... Like you used to have in the 80s mat. for tea. Yeah, like a oh, coaster no, size. Like a coaster size, yeah. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, if you can design and build a pizza oven leg for my dad, I'm sure he'll be very happy to use it. He you... will be the one that designs and builds it if anyone does. <laughs> but <laughs> it's just, I don't, I think the whole point is with biomimetics, Ooh. you are looking to replicate what system is naturally there. But uh, Hugh Hare had decided that he <laughs> wasn't going to do this. He didn't really care about what his limbs looked like. And as a result, he was able to climb walls and spaces that no human being had ever climbed before because he was entirely designing these new limbs based on their functionality and being based on able to be superhuman. That is great. Yeah. Why try and bring back the thing that you can't make something better? Exactly. And all of that science is called biomechatronics, right? Good name. And it's based on your biophysics, so how your body naturally moves. So it's not passive technology, it's reactive technologies. Things like the fit sockets that go over your stumps that can encode those muscle impulses um, from your residual stump. So that's what I was talking about before with Tilly Lockie. Your twitches um, in your muscle fibres and from your nerve impulses that allow that biofeedback onto your new limb. So I've got a question. Yeah. How do things like legs and arms stay on? Because you presumably don't fuse it to the flesh. Oh, well, that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. That's why, I asked, <laughs> that's why I asked about it. I'm interested. So, I mean, there are several different socket types. Originally, these things would just be strapped on right. via like leather straps. But even like, the, the torsion you'd need to... Yeah. Yeah, it'd mm-hmm. be hard. It is hard. There are things called um, shear, um, some of the effects on sort of your lower limb of your limb pistoning in and out of the socket as you walk um, that can cause skin damage. Yeah. Um, But if you use a a, a vacuum seal around it, 
that's one of the best ways of making a really, really secure fit, which you pump out the air and you effect effectively suction your limb in and it stops the limb expanding and contracting so much. Um, what and my it, dad's going to have immediately is, I think it's a sort of a piston and, um, not a piston, like a, a socket and spike fit. Which is you, what? You effectively, you put on a sock um, over your residual stump and when you say sock this is a especially fitted especially designed thingy yeah then like a rubber thing over the top of that with a wee spike on the end of it really he'll have a spike on the end of it yeah but like very a sm- James like, Bond. A, like an umbrella spike yeah no i understand that kind of locks into the limb yeah um but how the limbs are designed there's a rating scale that goes from k1 which is people who mostly want to sit down and then occasionally get up for a cup of tea and they can get by with quite a rudimentary limb to K4, which is professional athletes, people who are very, very mobile, who want to run around over sort of boulders and rough ground and things like that. And they'd have the kettle built in, presumably, so they don't (laughs) need to. So they don't have to stop. Yeah. Listen, pizza oven limbs, kettle limbs, we we have the technology to do those perfectly without having to install it in... We already have really good kettles. Oh yeah, okay. That you don't need to have inside your calf muscles. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that if you have the kettle built in, you will never be without hot water. That's like you're saying. Make it better. What are you going to do with a cup of hot water? I mean, other than make a cup of tea. Okay, all right then. Beautiful tea. So the limb that my dad's getting is going to have a special foot on it called a rush rogue foot. That's a, that's a good name. It's good, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Sounds kind of like... And the thing about your dad is he's always... He's a bit of a... He wants to get sort of the best versions of stuff. Anyway, like yeah. when he was got into cycling, he suddenly had nine bikes all made from a different Type of material. carbon fiber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I imagine he's going to have lots of legs. He's... He might have more than one. Yeah, Yeah. we'll see. So what is quite interesting about this new leg is it's got a vertical loading pylon. So that's a sort of a suspension system Mm -hmm. that goes... This is specifically your dad's leg? Yeah. Okay. Um, And that increases its impact absorption. So he should theoretically be able to run around and he's already walking on it. And a smooth roll through so that as you walk going from your heel to your toe, it doesn't feel like a sort of a clonk. It's more like a and then it's got a biomimetic ankle roll so biomimetic is again echoing what happens in nature so it can tilt to the side forwards and backwards we're just both doing that aren't we yeah we are that's no good for a podcast but we are we are using our bio roll (laughs) just just because we're thinking about it which normally we wouldn't have to which is something called preoproception oh proprioception which i will just talk about in a second so what you can do there, you can there's rotational torso, torsion, which means you can twist the limb around a bit. Um, and this is quite important because, as I've previously said, the world is not flat. And our feet are used to running on, moving on surfaces that are wibbly wobbly. Mm-hmm. Like and, a bouncy castle. Yeah, or like time. <laughs> well, yeah, or time, yeah. Fan. So you need to be able to do sort of transverse movements. You need to be able to switch direction quickly. So those sorts, of, the whole biomimetic idea was coined by a uh, chap called Otto Schmidt in 1957. 
that he built a device mimicking a nerve impulse. And biomimetic stuff is not just limited to the properties of a human body, it's also any kind of species. So, you know, what is it about shark skin that means that it goes through, that it's very sort of hydrophobic and can go through the water very, very... Hydrophobic? Yeah, like shark skin doesn't have a lot of friction with water. Are you saying shark skin is scared of water? No, no. (laughs) Basically, it's the properties of a biological entity that can be replicated to have a non-biological property. Okay. Like, I don't know, spider silk being used for bulletproof To swing around New York. Or or to swing around New York. It might be a property of commercial interest. But with 50 species a day going extinct, we'll never know all of that interesting biomimetic stuff that we could be using for our own development. We should probably do something about that as a species. But that's another episode. It is another episode. So I just mentioned proprioception. You did. Which is sort of knowing where your limb is without looking. Like if I was to tell, ask you right now, hey, Chris, where's your right hand? You wouldn't have to sort of think about it. You would just be able to... It's on my shin. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, can I say something about this very sure. quickly? I, as you know, about... Hmm. I had, I had flat feet. Yeah. Um, and about... What would it be now? Five, six years ago, I decided yeah. to start wearing barefoot shoes, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which are shoes that have a very, very thin sole, three millimeter sole um, or less. And and what that means is that the foot can feel the ground in ways that when you're in very modern shoes that have a lot of air cushioning and and um, and well, yeah, just cushioning of any kind, you don't get, and it gives you this whole other layer of feedback that you wouldn't have otherwise. Mm. Um, So you sort of know more about your surroundings without looking through the soles of your your feet. Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing or is this about position in space more than it is about feedback? Um, It is about feedback because it's the sense of self-movement and body position which is governed by mechanosensory neurons that are located within your muscles, your tendons, and your joints. So remember Hugh Hare, that bloke? How could we forget him? How could you forget him? So he's been working on how to train his existing muscles to feel proprioceptive impulses and responses to his artificial limbs. Like, is there any way of making an artificial limb feel, have it feel more like part of your body? Mm. So one way that they've been doing that is uh, you can place electrodes on your upper leg to measure the impulses in those muscles, the agonistic, antagonistic muscles that would normally be working together. And that is a part of something called a muscle spindle test, which checks to see which muscle groups are working and which aren't in amputees. And using that that biofeedback, some of it can be then put into servos within the limb to create the same response that would normally be put in there by the opposing muscle group so you can have a a limb that is truly able to replicate those bus uh, those biomimetic impulses 
What? So it will give you feedback based on its positioning. Yeah. Uh, and allow you to. Yeah. Oh wow! And there is a limb company in the UK that makes those. Um, that is uh, accessible to people in Scotland, but not in people in in uh, England yet. And that's not going to get any better. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but it is a special robot leg that will adjust itself based on uh, feedback from your. Um, residual muscles great yeah so yeah so i think i understand your body is doing a thousand tiny self-adjustments every moment uh and once your limb isn't there it can't participate in the process unless we give it well you've still got half those processes are still going on Mm -hmm. but the the limb can't adjust exactly exactly did you know that the maximum time that below knee amputees can balance on their prosthesis is one minute and 30 seconds? That's the maximum that anyone can do it. Yeah. But Sounds I mean, like a challenge. If you thought like, if you think about just standing on a foot that's still there, I imagine the number of people who can stand on a foot that's still there without any support for one minute and 30 seconds without falling over is probably quite. Shall I try it now for while you're talking? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, we should find a way of timing you. Uh, this stopwatch? Okay, use that stopwatch. Okay. Whilst you do that, I'm going to talk a bit about neuroplasticity, seeing as how much I love it. Okay, off you go. Let's see if you can do it. <laughs> so, so far, so good. Yeah, well done, my darling. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how being an amputee changes your brain. Sure. Which, yeah. So okay. I'm not going to say as much. I'll You're not going to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there have been quite a few studies about how the brain changes in people who have amputations. Uh, one of them was done by a guy called uh, Francisco Molina Rueda et al. So your brain actually changes. You have an increase in your cerebellar grey matter volume in prosthesis users and some decrease in your white matter um, between your cortical and subcortical areas. So do you know the difference between grey matter and white matter? I do not. In the brain. Okay, all right. So your white matter um, is about communications and impulses. It's got a lot of long chain fibres in it. And your grey matter is essentially your storage. So your decrease in white matter corresponds with the decreased need for communication with the limb. And the cerebellum where the increase in grey matter is often seen, it controls your motor control, your coordination and precision. So that basically correlates to your body trying to adjust your increased need for proprioception, but not needing to communicate that to the limb. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how things, how, yeah, how the brain will change and adapt to any new situation. Yeah, I, I find it, I find it incredible too. Oh, that's a minute 45. Okay, well done. You did get a bit wobbly there towards the end. It did. It wasn't easy. And I've, you know, had the use of that You've been working on a lot of strength training and balance and stuff recently, haven't you, as well? It must be incredible to do that on an artificial leg. I'm going to tell you my, the thing that I heard, which about the brain adapting, which I thought was amazing, was someone who was blind and they, they ride a bike. And they echolocate by doing this, by clicking their tongue. And when, after a while of doing it, so they can ride a bike doing it, they um, they 
they uh, went, doctors studied this person, this man, and the visual sensors of his brain lit up when he did his echolocation. So the brain had rewired itself. So he did see something. He saw something. Amazing. He was an actual daredevil. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Humans. Humans. Can be incredible. Can be. So humans first started replacing body parts in ancient Egypt. Um, they were particularly keen on strap-on toes. Like they like big toes because they wore a lot of sandals. So you had specially <laughs> specially designed wooden strap-on toes so your feet would look good in your sandals. Right, so they hadn't even lost their toes. They just wanted to augment them. No, no, they had sometimes lost their toes, but they just wanted their feet to look normal. Right. Um, and then in Rome, there was a famous general called Marcus Sergius who lost his arm in battle and then had it replaced with a metal one to be his like shield arm. Mm. And then we have like peg legs, wooden peg legs, some hinge joints to try and approximate knees and elbows and things. There were knights in medieval times who would have iron replacements with manipulable fingers to hold weaponry. And then in the 16th century, there was this bloke called Ambroise Poire, or Pare, who designed a hinged hand made out of leather and plate, paper and glue, which was much, much lighter. And that actually had manipulable digits. They couldn't be manipulated, obviously, via servos because those hadn't been invented. But he worked with a mate of his who was a locksmith who was used to working with tiny little mechanisms to make a hand that was light enough that it could be used. And that was all part of, well, increasing industrialization and the need for people who had had these sorts of amputations to still be employable. So I think that's quite interesting. Um, there was a bloke who's called Marcel de Souter. He was an aviator in 1912 and he lost his leg and his brother Charles designed a, a specially engineered aluminium replacement with a knee joint that was to help his brother learn how to walk normally again. But if you have a knee joint but don't have the muscles, mm. surely, I mean, it would. I just don't understand how that would work. I mean, obviously you lift up your upper leg and the hinge joint would happen, but it, it just feels like that's not really mimicking what a leg does. It's not. That's because these were these were early sort of things. Yeah. But you can even see adverts for limbs that are all about like how this will allow you to go back uh, to everyday life. So Khan's arm puts you on the payroll or the Mark's limb factory in New York, which worked a lot with railroad ap amputees in America who would often have sort of crush injuries resulting in the ampu amputation of limbs. They would say, a full day on full pay with our double slip socket legs, those sorts of things. It's always good in an advertisement mm. to have a rhyming slogan. Yeah, I think so. That's sort of gone out of vogue recently. <laughs> a little bit, hasn't it? There's a bloke who's a vet from Surrey who's called um, Professor Noel Fitzpatrick. And what he's actually been doing is grafting amputation prostheses directly onto remnant bones, which then grow through the skin and additional bone grows onto that implant. And your little metal prosthesis comes directly out of the end of your leg. This is in animals. This is in animals. But there's the possibility now, especially due to 3D printing, that you could be able to create artificial bone, and people have done so, that's more elastic than metal, but that comes directly out of the end of your stump 
thus removing the need for things Spike like and spikes sock. and sockets, vacuum things to have a socket at all. So as long as we can get the sort of wound care right to deal with here's a metal thing coming directly out of the end of your leg, it's possible that we could completely do away with not with, with prostheses that come off. You right. could just have a prosthetic leg that's just part of 3D you. print a new leg onto yourself. Yeah, surgically grafted in. I mean, we graft artificial parts into our bodies all the time, you know. I mean, all the time. Who all has the time? I know a number of people who've got false hips now, and that's that's fine. They work just as well or sometimes even better than what was there before. My teeth? Your teeth, yeah, they are implants. But an implant that becomes a exterior thing is something that we're not really quite there yet as a species but the fact that we can do it so successfully with our pets means that possibly you know next pets. few years i feel like pets are always at the forefront of human achievement when we go into <laughs> space we'll send some we'll animals send up there first. Up first yeah very They're, good you know they, i don't think they get the recognition they deserve for how how much they're pushing the human race forwards yeah yeah. Pets. They are nice. They are nice. Anyway, so th that's about where I got to in my uh, research on prostheses. So I have a question. Yeah. Who is your favourite fictional amputee? I have three. <gasps> Would you like to hear my three? Go on. Number one, Long John Silver. Number mm -hmm. two, The Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. And number three... Jamie Lannister. Oh, interesting. Uh, my favourite uh, fictional amputee is probably Arafura Ness from Revenger by Alistair Reynolds. She is a space pirate mm -hmm. who cool. gets a tracking bracelet removed from her arm by having the arm amputated and then uh, gets a cool new biomechanic one fitted and Luke Skywalker, of course. Sorry, just realised. Yeah, when Luke you said Skywalker, that. the gold standard of biomimetic implants. It's a great hand. It's almost like it's just a normal hand in a glove. Yep, that's how good it is. <laughs> and it's responsive to pain. Yes, another sort of stimuli. Is it? Yeah, it is. There's a thing where they show him getting little pinpricks on the end of his fingers and uh. his fingers twitching. Yeah. Um. So. Talking about fictional uh, amputees. Which we were. Brings us round to talking about the real amputee, who I'm going to quickly run through. I know this is a longer episode than usual, but... That's okay. This is a special episode. So the amputee who I've chosen to look at is Sir Douglas Bader, <gasps> uh, who is relevant to us because he has given his name to the ward that my dad is carrying. He has. Is he still alive? Nope. Okay. He died one month before I was born. Oh, interesting. Um, so when he was younger, he was a bit of a scamp. His family moved around a bit and his dad died during the First World War due to injuries that he sustained. His mum remarried a reverend and who was, an, was not very firm-handed in how he took care of Douglas. And it's his hard brothers. being a stepdad. Or any kind of step-parent, because you've got to be strict enough that people don't go off the rails, mm. but you have to acknowledge that you're not... Their actual... Yeah. 
Maybe you are. You can become there. You can become, care. but it's, you can have it's that a relationship. very, I think it's a hard. It's a delicate balance. It is, yeah. So see, here is one of the naughty things that he did. Um, he was peeping on a woman, a, a society lady, getting naked in her bathroom, ready to jump into the I mean, the that's bath. more than a scamp. It's that's, a bit of a scamp. That's very It gets bad. worse. It okay. gets worse. Um, and then he shot her through the window with a BB gun. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't a sort of sexual thing then. <laughs> I don't know what the hell he was doing. Being a bit of a dick. Yeah. Um, and afterwards, he was all like, oh, well, it wouldn't have hurt. Blah, blah, blah. So one of his mates took the pellet gun off him and shot him point blank in the shoulder. And then he was like, okay, yes, it would have hurt. And that's how he became an amputee? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, after that, his mum packed him off to a very strict boarding school where he played lots of cricket and rugby. He actually tried out for the Harlequins. So he's pretty good at those things. Um, and then he got a scholarship to Cambridge. He turned down Oxford in favour of Cambridge. And um, then started doing cool stuff um, in aircraft. And I think... Uh, As in he piloted them? Yeah, he started flying aircraft. And at the time, uh, he was flying a lot of uh, bulldog aircraft. Which... You're using aircraft, a plural without an S. Is that how you do it? Is it a I... bunch of aircraft? Yes. Okay, I've been saying it wrong all Not these different... years. Aircraft. All those aircrafts. <laughs> yeah. Now I think about it, maybe I wasn't. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so the Bulldog aircraft are not very controllable at low altitude. They they're quite Seems like a bit of a design for there. Mm, yes. And they're great when you get really high up, but that <laughs> bit where you're going up or down, that's it's awful. A bit, they're a bit wibbly. Right. And uh, so, as a result, low-flying aerobatics were banned in them. But Bader sort of thought himself a bit above that. He considered those bans a bit of a safety, health and safety gone mad thing. <laughs> and in fact, when he was starting out in the RAF, he was nearly court-martialed because he was doing so many stupid stunts on motorbikes and in his aircraft that he got very, very badly reprimanded for it and... Like he he risked dismissal all the time. He was like the maverick of the RAF. He was. Then in 1931, he was doing a slow roll near the ground. When I say near the ground, what caused his crash was the wing actually hit the ground. That is very low. <laughs> yep. So he crashed, and um, in the wreck. He, when he was pulled out, he had to have one leg amputated below the knee and the other one above the knee. Oh, wow. And he nearly died. And apparently he heard somebody when he was in this morphine-induced haze say, oh, well, that, that bloke's going to die. And Great bedside manner by well, that doctor. I don't doctor. think they thought that they could Well, hear, that, that bloke's going to die. Yeah, but it, it was in his case because, as you probably guessed, he was quite a, a sort of contrary person. As soon mm. as you told him that he weren't, wasn't allowed to do like, don't shoot naked women who are about to get in the bath. Yeah, he would do that. Don't do aerobatics. <laughs> he was going to do that. And so he decided that he was going to become fully perambulatory. And he learned how to walk. And this is at a time where... Where that really wasn't that common. Yeah. He learned how to walk. He learned how to dance. He learned how to drive again. He fell in love with a waitress called Thelma at a tea room called the Pantiles in Bagshot. Sorry. I mean, I would... Oh, in Bagshot? Yeah, just down in the baggers. I call it Baggers. Don't then... I? It's one of my favourite cafes there. Yeah. Maybe it's the same building. Who knows? Pantiles. 
Maybe you'll meet your own Thelma there. I've already met my Thelma. Hooray! I am your Louise. Oh, you're so lovely. Um, and then he campaigned to return to RAF service. Um, <laughs> wow. Because he just, he liked flying. Sure. And, and it, it, there was no problems with that. It he, took a long time because even though he could pass the tests and yes, he did decide that he was going to fly upside down just to prove a point during mm-hmm. one of the tests because he was a bit of a wag. Um, there weren't any regulations that sort of said, oh yeah, people without limbs can fly. Or can't fly, presumably. People were just like, this is not going to come up at any point. Well, that's that's the thing. It never been written into the King's Service regulations. Sure. Like, what happens if it's somebody without legs? So, originally, the RAF were like, no, no, sorry. You can pass the test, but that doesn't mean that we'll let you fly. So, he had to keep going and going. And eventually, when war broke out, he was allowed back into the RAF. And that, in fact... Being legless at that point gave him an advantage in dogfights because the sort of turns and twists and spins that you put your aircraft into make huge, huge G-forces operant on, on your, your toes. body. Oh, right. And a lot of blood will drain away from your central central cavity and your from, from your brain out to your limbs as a result of those centrifugal forces. So when you don't have limbs... It meant you keep he could, him a bit central. Exactly. It means he was able to stay conscious for much, much longer than pilots with legs. My granddad met him during the Second World War several oh, yeah. times. Yeah, because my granddad was also a pilot during the <laughs> That's war. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's, uh, so um, he was a squadron leader during the Battle of Britain. Uh, he had 22 confirmed shoot downs. And he probably should have retired from combat flying in 1941. But because he was so passionate about doing this thing that he'd found he could do really well, commanders didn't want to upset him. Sure. So they just let him keep going. Just let him keep flying. <laughs> yeah, even though... even when the war was over, they were like, "Just go and shoot no, down no, no, something." Nineteen forty-one is pretty much. Still I know. Going. I'm, yeah, I just meant in the years to come. I mean, it was just, his personality was very, very bullish. Nobody was going to tell him to stop doing things that he did want to stop doing. He seems the kind of person that is sort of admirable at a distance, except yes. for the shooting naked women, but probably wasn't great to be around. <laughs> yes. Yes. Headstrong, blunt, and unsophisticated. He was quite racist. Bit of he a Tory, in, I imagine. Absolutely. He, in fact, he ran for member of parliament and was like, bring back hanging, stop immigration, blah, blah, blah. Sure. He believed in capital punishment. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of those things that we are hopefully getting towards a more enlightened age, although who knows? No, we're, we're taking many steps back. Many at the steps back. <laughs> So anyhow, in um, August of 1941, he was flying around over oh, France no. with a group, saw a bunch of enemy aircraft and very impulsively and quickly dived on them far too fast that he could actually shoot them initially um, and was separated from the group, possibly was shot down by friendly fire. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, at which point he pulled off his one false leg so that he could get out of the aircraft. The other leg got caught and then when his parachute opened, the resulting force pulled it off. So the aircraft flew off with his other leg still in it and crashed somewhere, was never recovered. 
If it had one of those new limbs that had all the new servo muscles and stuff in it, maybe the you limb could have piloted the plane. Could have landed the plane safely. I mean, he had a few crushes, <laughs> crashes over the course of his flying career, which would have resulted in his legs being amputated. So in many ways, he said it was actually quite good that it happened early on. Right. Because he also crashed a Spitfire at the end of a runway once, and that would have buckled... Burned the, his legs off. Well, it buckled both of his shins backwards so that they were kind of... <laughs> They looked like the hind legs of a cat. And I'm looked... laughing. I, it's horrific. But uh, it's funny that he would have been... He was an amputee many times over. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But um, the RAF was actually allowed to airdrop replacement legs to the Luftwaffe base where he was staying in an operation called Leg Operation. <laughs> Good name. Apparently the Germans were quite pissed off because after dropping his legs, they then took advantage to go and bomb another munitions factory nearby which was a <laughs> the bit Germans, of a poor show did the Germans let them in yeah so. to drop his legs <laughs> off and then they were like okay and have a bomb at the same time that's so bad I know it's really bad oh um anyway he nearly escaped from the hospital in Saint-Omer where in fact his father had died 30 years previously by tying bedsheets together including wrenching one bedsheet out from a New Zealand pilot who just had his arm operated right. on, well amputated too and uh, in a put like when you put a full tea set on a table and yeah. whip out the yeah I mean I hope it cloth. was like that I hope the <laughs> poor guy recovering from having his arm taken off didn't notice the kiwi just went knows. out the window <laughs> well then they used his bed as an anchor so that he could climb out of the window and uh, he tried to escape but was caught in the hospital garden. Because he didn't have legs? No, no, because of course he had his new legs Oh, this was delivered by that point. Delivery bombing run. Post leg operation. But um, somebody snitched on him. And the peasant couple who'd been going to help him shelter were sent off to a concentration camp. Oh. Which, you know, I they feel... survived. Okay. But, but not still great. awful. Yeah. Um, so he decided that he was going to take up goon baiting, which was causing trouble by doing a lot of escape attempts. Right. Uh, he escaped from Stalag Luft, which was a famous camp. Why didn't they just take his legs Steal away his again? Legs. If he was going to goon it up all over the place, just like, right, fine. Maybe they Tell did. you what, tell you what, we're, we'll we're, not give, we're not giving these back. <laughs> Until you stop trying to escape. Well, he did escape for a few days from Stadagluft, but unfortunately there was a German air officer who was really excited about meeting him. So went and knocked on the door of his cell when he was passing by, and that's how they found out that he wasn't there because he just didn't answer the door. Uh, So after a few escapes... Hoisted by his own petard. Quite. By his own fame. Mm. They transferred him to Kolditz, and he couldn't get out of there. No. And then after the war, he worked for Shell for a bit because they'd actually been willing to employ him when he'd first had his accident at the age of 23. So he had a he felt like he had a special affinity for them and worked for them as a matter of principle. Um, and like I say, he was he was fairly horrifically racist and very foul mouthed and, you know, it, it didn't really moderate his behavior for anybody, which is probably what made him so tenacious in getting back into flying and it's probably part of the attitude that you need is that sort of stubbornness and headstrong quality if you are going to get over these big setbacks and he campaigned tirelessly his whole life for disabled rights 
and he died of a heart attack whilst driving back home through Chiswick um, in 1982. Also lived in Chiswick? Yeah, yeah. So the Douglas Bader Rehabilitation Centre has 10 beds for patients who are going through limb rehab, of which my dad is one. So that's Douglas Bader. So Adrian, if you're listening to this, you should, I think, just to honour him, like nickel the bed sheets of all your fellow patients yeah. and, and and then make, make climb, it out climb the window. Climb through the window. I climb, mean, yeah. I mean I know it is on, on the lower yeah. ground floor. So sure. It, it wouldn't be that much of a it was. It would be more a symbolic gesture. <laughs> yeah, go on, Dad. Climb out the window with some bed sheets. <laughs> Just do it. Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, this, this has been brilliant. Uh, lots of really interesting stuff. Lots of things for people, I think, to... To look up more that I mean stuff I'm interested in going off and and looking at more particularly all that all that new limb technology stuff about yeah. like why should a hand look like a hand now yeah it doesn't need to exactly yeah that sounds amazing people will probably do it voluntarily in the fairly near future yeah I mean that's something that the drummer who the a uh, polyrhythmic drummer was saying is like some people who he meets are so impressed by his collection of limbs that have different purposes that they're like, wow, I would genuinely look into doing that myself. I think we're a way away from I doing that. I think we are, yes. Because the human body is an amazing thing. It can do amazing things. But if it's not there, like if you don't have the option of using your hand because you've had to have it amputated, why not push the boat out and do something cool with it? Thank you so much, Laura. That was a great chat. Uh, And to everyone at home, hope you've enjoyed this special edition. Um, We will be back now doing episodes. Sorry about it, but it has been a a pretty weird and hard time for us all. Yes, it has. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address is ixpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to send any good wishes for recovery through to my dad, um, you can do that too. We should like. point out his blog, actually, because yes. I think it's really very well written and about something that, that you know, people don't go through that often. Yeah, so absolutely. it's very interesting. It's called The Peg Leg Chronicles and you can find it on Medium. Yeah, medium.com. If you just go there and, and type in Peg Leg Chronicles, you'll see, I think he's, he's putting up couple of week actually at the moment yeah and they're really good and i would also like to say thank you to my mum for being an excellent support to my dad through all of this well done mum you guys you're doing a very good job you two and we will be back next week with a completely different subject possibly one not quite so personal yes bye bye Put him in the brig until he's sober. Put him in the brig until he's sober. Put him in the brig until he's sober. Heard I in the morning. Wait up, she rises. Wait up, she rises. Wait up, she rises. Heard I in the morning.